Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. It's time for Sorallo Sports Talk with Joe Sorallo. Episode 16, and I can't wait. Former NFL quarterback Ryan Leaf is all set to join the show. And how about last night's game? How about the Baltimore Ravens and the Cleveland Browns delivering the game of the year on Monday night? Just when it had seemed as if this was another less than stellar, mediocre passing performance from Lamar Jackson. He used those final two minutes of the game to make this not just his best game of the season, but arguably the best game of his three-year NFL career. This was an elimination game for the Baltimore Ravens. If they lost to Cleveland last night, if they fell to 7-6, and six, they, much like the 7-6 and six Las Vegas Raiders, could kiss their playoff hopes goodbye at this point in the season. And Lamar, while he ran the ball tremendously the entire game, nine carries for over 120 yards and a couple of scores, Lamar couldn't throw the ball, and the receiving core for Baltimore couldn't catch a cold. I mean, Marquise Brown, and I'm calling him Marquise because you have to earn the nickname Hollywood, Marquise Brown had one reception on five targets going into the two-minute warning in the fourth quarter, and three drops, two of which might have been the easiest possible receptions in the history of the National Football League. I mean, he is Marquise Brown for 58 minutes of that game. Became Hollywood Brown in the final two. And the reason he became Hollywood Brown is because after Lamar went to the locker room with cramps and Trace McSorley came in and suffered what looked like an absolutely brutal injury to his left knee, and I hope Trace is okay, but that Trace McSorley injury set up Lamar Jackson to come sprinting out of the locker room. Shades of Willis Reed in Game 7 of the 1970 NBA Finals. Shades of Kirk Gibson hobbling around the bases after a walk-off in 1988, Game 1 of that World Series. Lamar Jackson emerging from the locker room. He says he had cramps. He swore in the post-game press conference that he didn't pull a Paul Pierce, didn't call for the wheelchair because he had to go to the locker room and take a crap. He says that he certainly had cramps, and that is believable. Don't forget, Lamar Jackson, not too long ago, had COVID, was in bed for 10 days. Said all he did for 10 days was sleep. So here he comes, emerging from the locker room. Game on the line, a crucial fourth and five in Cleveland territory. And he has the easiest first down of the night if he runs the ball. All he had to do was get flushed out to his right like he did, and take off, he had a clear as day gap ahead of him for a first down. But no, Lamar said, I'm going to win this game with my arm. He kept the Ravens in the game with his legs. He won it with his arm. And that's when he turned Marquise Brown back into Hollywood Brown. And a 45-yard touchdown later with a minute 51 to play, the Ravens were back in business. That made, that final two-minute stretch, made this the game of Lamar Jackson's young NFL career. I mean, what a finish. And Cleveland wasn't done. No, Cleveland by no means was dead in this one. In fact, Cleveland marched right down the field 
on Don Martindale's lackluster defense, to say the least, last night. And Cleveland responded with a score of their own to tie the game. Cleveland's fault was leaving too much time on the clock for Lamar Jackson to operate. Because he didn't just come in for fourth and five, make a big throw, and then go back to the locker room. No, 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 no. Lamar came back in the game after Cleveland tied it. And he sliced and diced the Browns' defense and got the Ravens in field goal position for the best kicker of all time, Justin Tucker. I mean, all of a sudden, we went from no one on that Ravens team having more than two receptions. Hollywood Brown, Mark Andrews led the way with two receptions. All of a sudden, tie game, a minute to go. Mark Andrews, that connection's back. He is three of the Ravens' four catches on that last drive to set up Justin Tucker. Willie Sneed got in on the action, too. Lamar's accuracy was pinpoint. Lamar Jackson might have had the best passing game of his NFL career. And look, he's had games where he's thrown for three, 400 yards. But he did so against a Dolphins team last year in week one that was slated to go 0-16. That at 5-11 and drastically outperformed their expectations. Lamar has had great passing games against last year's Dolphins. This year's Bengals. Lamar hasn't done that against the playoff team yet. Even... And when people started dubbing this the best game of Lamar's career, I had to say, hold up, because I had to look at last year's game against the then 8-0 undefeated New England Patriots. And after looking at that game, in which the Ravens dominated New England, gave them their first loss, a 37-20 embarrassment on Sunday Night Football, well, while it was a great game by the Baltimore Ravens, it was a good game by Lamar Jackson. Lamar outperformed that game last night in Cleveland And that, that was a playoff-ready quarterback. That was a quarterback ready to prove the haters wrong and say, yeah, I'm a runner, but I can beat teams with my arm, and I'm going to do so right here against the playoff team. Against a team that Stephen A. Smith is crowning Kansas City's biggest threat in the AFC. And I've got more on that later in this show. The Cleveland Browns, trust me, are not the biggest threat to the Kansas City Chiefs in that conference. And I don't want to take anything away from Baker Mayfield and the Cleveland Browns, because let's face it, if Lamar Jackson doesn't emerge from that locker room in hero fashion last night on that fourth and five play inside two minutes to go, what we're talking about today is the comeback led by Baker Mayfield and the Cleveland Browns. Down 34-20, going up 42-34. That's what we're talking about if Lamar Jackson doesn't play hero last night. So I don't want to take any credit away from them. The Browns are going to the playoffs. The Browns are one of the most high-powered offenses, one of the most exciting teams in the National Football League. But the Browns, with the exception of that great win against Tennessee, are not a team that I trust against other teams of playoff quality. It's just a fact of the matter there. You know, the Raiders went to Cleveland and held them to six points. The Browns have a dynamic offense. They have two incredible running backs. They don't have the poise or the defense when the competition gets to that next level to hang in there. Lamar Jackson and the Ravens are the better bet against better teams. And I know this year's been a very disappointing year. Sorry, Colin Coward, the Ravens aren't going 16-0 for you this year. But all of a sudden, the Ravens are in the driver's seat. They're 8-5. It's a highly competitive AFC wildcard race. But the toughest team remaining on Baltimore's schedule is a home matchup with the 5-8 and eight New York Giants. They've got the Jaguars this week, the Giants next week in Baltimore, and then the Cincinnati Bengals to end the season. 
it's not unrealistic for the Baltimore Ravens following this win last night to finish the year 11-5 and and guarantee themselves a playoff spot. 10-6, and they would need some help. They would probably need Cleveland to finish 1-2 and because they would have the tiebreaker if they're both 10-6 and going 2-0 and against the Browns. But now the Ravens finally have some very realistic playoff hopes. And if they sneak into the postseason... I would really like the Ravens' chances if they get a third crack at the Pittsburgh Steelers. That's the kind of team this is. And Lamar Jackson is proving that he can beat you now, as he did last night, with either his legs or his arm. And that makes for about the most dangerous offense in the NFL, as you saw last year when they went 14-2, ran the table with 12 straight wins at the end of the year before their playoff exit at the hands of the Titans. Look, this was... The most fun game I've seen all season in the NFL. If you bet this game, you were either doing an Irish jig at the end of the night celebrating or crying as the guy in the black jacket who ESPN showed after the game with your head in your hands because of that last second safety. I mean, that safety meant nothing in terms of the actual game result. But if you had Baltimore minus three like this guy did, that safety was absolutely incredible. I hit Baltimore minus three. I hit the over. It was the easiest over I'd ever bet in my life. I mean, that was absolutely incredible. When I checked the lines for this game and saw that the over-under was 45 and a half, I had to do a double take. It was like the Looney Tunes. My eyes popped out of my head. And I said, hammer that over. I mean, these two teams could have covered it at halftime. They had 35 combined points in the fourth quarter. 19 in the final two minutes. I mean, this was the easiest over of all time, but would have been after leading 34-20, such a disappointing non-cover for the Ravens, minus three, until that safety at the last second made this one the greatest cover of all time. That's right. Not only was this the greatest game this season, I mean, a history-making game, the most rushing touchdowns in an NFL contest since 1922. I mean, in 1922, I don't think they knew that you were allowed to pass the ball back then. I think it was only a rushing league. The most rushing touchdowns in a game since 1922. A safety on a what felt like eight-minute long hook and ladder attempt as time expired to end the game. Greatest cover of all time. Greatest game of the season. I hope like heck we get to see both of these teams in the postseason come January because these are some of the most fun quarterbacks some of the most fun offenses to watch in the NFL coming up I can't wait to hear what Ryan Leaf has to say about that game last night and much more including eating sushi off naked models so stick with us Sorallo Sports Talk with Joe Sorallo we'll be right back Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Sorallo Sports Talk with Joe Sorallo. Here on Sorallo Sports Talk, and joining the show 
He was the second overall pick in the 1998 NFL Draft. You can hear him breaking down college football or the pro game on Sirius XM Radio. The always entertaining Ryan Leaf. Ryan, thanks so much for joining the show. You bet. Thanks for having me. Of course, man. Look, it's a, it's a really different world than the last time we saw each other down in Miami ahead of Super Bowl 54. How have you and your family been doing? Well, you know, it's it's been difficult for for everybody. You know, uh, I think that's what makes this such a relatable topic is because everybody's going through it. You know, since March, I got pulled off the road when I was working with ESPN and I haven't, you know, I haven't been out since really been locked down. I live in LA, which has been incredibly efficient in terms of keeping people at home and quarantined and things like that. So what it has done, it's, it's allowed me to refocus on, on what's important. And in recovery, it's the foundation of rebirth, or um, you get to focus on making the next right choice, uh, doing things differently. And one of the things that I felt like I had neglected when I got so busy and you're running all over the country was my physical health and uh, my nutrition. And so I reinvested in that. And incredibly, uh, it's been one of those things where as a former athlete, getting focused on something again, has been incredibly powerful. I've lost 80 pounds in six months. So it's, wow. uh, it's really been a transformation. Uh, unfortunately, when I, when I get the opportunity to be back on TV, when this is all over, I won't have any clothes that fit me. So I'm going to have to go redo all that. <laughs> yeah, that can be a pain, but it, it sounds like it's well worth it. You know, it's funny, Ryan. I, I love hearing that you're doing that, that you've done that with, your, uh, with yourself. It's so rewarding physically and mentally. You know, when this quarantine started, it probably took me until about July to realize, all right, People right now are doing one of two things. They're either getting in the worst shape of their lives or the best shape of their lives. And from July on, I've taken the opportunity. It sounds like you have too. I'm in the best shape of my life right now. And honestly, not just is it physically rewarding, but I feel like when you're in a place like Los Angeles or when you're in a place like New York, that's relatively locked down as well. Working out is the only thing that I feel like is keeping me mentally sane at this point. It is. Luckily for us, um, California has allowed golf courses to stay open because it's probably the best <laughs> opportunity to be social yet distant from one another. Yeah. Uh, and so I've, I've used that as the workout side of it. And then I really, you know, reinvested in the nutrition side of things. And of course, when, when you're putting the right things in your body, that, that just helps your mental health side of it. And that's, I really can tell a difference there. There's a ton more energy for me. I'm thinking more clearly. Uh, about about the right things too, not just you know when you lose all the all the extracurricular stuff, the things that you were doing as a profession and things like that, and that stuff goes away. You have to have a real good look in the mirror and go, well, that doesn't that that's not what identifies you. That's what you love to do, but it, it's not your identifier. You need to you know, regroup and and go back to what really was the solid foundation, at, and that was about being of service to others and focusing on yourself, your well-being. Uh, and that, that allows what you were able to do early on in your recovery to blossom again and, and really solidify that foundation. Well, Ryan, I love to hear it. I love to hear that you're doing well. Look, we've got a lot of great football this past weekend that we have to cover. And how about last night, Monday Night Football, the game of the year, Baker Mayfield versus Lamar Jackson. Which of these quarterbacks, in your opinion, is a bigger threat come the postseason after last night's performances? Well, I'm, I'm sorry to have to do this to you, but uh, like I told you, my, my, my focus has been uh, like the <laughs> building that foundation. And, 
And uh, on Monday nights, I go to a 12-step uh, fellowship meeting. And so I never watch Monday night football. But of course, <laughs> this morning, I heard all about it. And you got to go with the reigning MVP. The guy is, is multifaceted. And when things break down, it's a, it's a different kind of quarterback. And that's not taking away anything from Baker Mayfield and what he's been able to accomplish and what he's been able to do here in year three. So uh, I think it's going to be really exciting. It, looking more and more like the North is going to get three teams into the playoffs. Absolutely. Which I think, which I think is great. Unfortunately, you know, it, it, they all play in the AFC and you're all playing second fiddle to the quarterback in Kansas city. I'm sorry. You know, I mean, there's, there's teams that have been able to hang with them this year. But when push comes to shove and the game's on the line, I, I, I seriously doubt that anybody's going to hold a candle to, to Patrick Mahomes and what they do down the stretch. I do tend to agree with you on that. I mean, I've got my own gripes with the Chiefs against the spread. They've been one of the worst teams in football this year. I know yeah. that you can be a betting man yourself. Sunday night football. We were both on the right side of that Bills minus two and a half call. I want to ask you about Josh Allen because – Young Josh Allen and young Ryan Leaf look very comparable. 6'5", 240, absolute bulls. What do you think? What goes through your mind when you watch Josh Allen go to work on the field? Well, I, I can tell that, that he's improved. And I, and I want to say this about him. He, he hasn't rested on his laurels at all, getting drafted that high. Um, each offseason, he goes and just absolutely trains and recommits to his throwing motion and everything with Jordan Palmer down in Southern California. And I think it's one of the most impressive things. And it's, it's something I never did. And it's a reason why I didn't continue to develop. Because mm -hmm. when you get to the next level, I just assumed that, hey, you know, what I've always done is going to continue to be good enough. And it's not. You have to almost reinvest uh, and, and change things. Tom Brady's been a perfect example of that. He picks something out every offseason to go try to improve on. Josh Allen has done that. And he's also found a city a coaching staff, and a team that has rallied around him and allowed him to make his mistakes, get better, and get through it. And I think it's because he just—he never blamed anybody but himself. He, he took accountability for when he messed up and what he was trying to accomplish. He's one of the funnest quarterbacks to watch in the NFL in terms of, uh, of his play. And I, I think Buffalo is absolutely a perfect fit for him. And if there's anybody in the AFC right now that can challenge the Chiefs, in a playoff game, I would say it's the Bills. Because of their defense, because of what Josh Allen brings to the table offensively and the addition of Stephon Diggs on offense and what he's brought to Josh Allen's game. Ryan, I couldn't agree more with any of that. I totally think that the Buffalo Bills are the biggest threat to Kansas City. You know, I will say, we both had Buffalo minus two and a half, and at the end of the first half following the pick six, Tyler Bass shanks an extra point. And you summed it up best, man, when you said fucking kickers. And I opened up Twitter and I saw that and I was like, all day. If you had Dan Bailey, if you had any money on the Vikings, if you had the Bills, last night Cody Parkey missed that extra point. And man, fucking kickers. How frustrating can that be to you? When you're working your ass off, driving down the field, putting up points, and you can't rely on a guy to hit a chip shot for an extra point. Well, it's, it's you know, I watched kickers for years and I had one of the best in John Carney in San Diego. In fact, he won me my first start. Uh, we, game we probably shouldn't have won, but he hit a monster of a field goal to end the game to, to give me my, my first win and my first start in, in San Diego. So I, there's a little back and forth there, but kickers are weird. Kickers are like goalies. 
You know, they're just they're weird. And they all they have to do, all they have to do in practice is kick. All you got that's all you gotta do. You don't gotta do anything else, but they don't do it enough. They go off and play golf a bunch <laughs> and assume they're gonna be Justin Tucker and, and that's not how it works. And when they miss it, I am so frustrated with them in those terms. Yes. I was on the side of Dan Bailey on, on Sunday, too. I had Vikings plus seven, and it would have been an easy cover if they would have just been successful in the kicking game. I'm surprised we haven't heard he's been fired already at this <laughs> point. So I, I don't have sympathy for kickers. I, I really, really don't. I probably should. I probably should have more empathy around it. But I just think that if, they're, if you're going to be a kicker at a professional level, you better be, you better be automatic. Otherwise, you, you need to get out of the game. I totally agree with you, man. There's nothing more infuriating than losing a game or losing a cover because of a kicker. Hey, you know, we talked about Josh Allen and the, and the physical comparisons between you two when you were a young quarterback. There is a different quarterback from that 2018 draft class that I'm sure you can commiserate with. Actually, I'm sure there's two in Josh Rosen as well. But I want to talk about Sam Darnold, a guy who in year three has no help around him much like you had to experience, has people calling for his job, is already every day in the New York tabloids and the headlines witnessing other people calling Trevor Lawrence the savior of the Jets. What advice do you have for a guy like Sam Darnold, who hopefully he has a great NFL career, but it's almost certain that it won't be with the Jets? Hope and pray they release him. That, that's, that's my advice to him. Hope and pray that they release him uh, at the end of this year or trade him because he needs a brand new start difference between me and him in terms of you know everything everything that went wrong for me had to do with me I was the problem like Sam Darnold's not the problem the organization's the problem the system's the problem he is every bit as good uh, as people thought he would be when he was drafted in the first round and I, I look forward to him getting another opportunity somewhere else and if I'm Trevor Lawrence right and uh, and I do choose to come out after this year like he's he's mentioned in the past. First thing I do when I pick an agent, when I'm going through the referral process and, and making a decision and interviewing agents, I'm saying, all right, this is the deal. I no way, shape or form want to end up in New York. So you have to manipulate or figure out a way that works. And that's, that's who I'm going to pick as my agent. And if you're not willing or capable of doing that, then you can't represent me because Sam Darnold had as bright a future moving forward when he left USC as a first round draft pick as Trevor Lawrence will when he leaves for the NFL. And if he goes to the Jets, I don't care who they replace as a head coach or whatnot, they're going to struggle just because it is systematic. And that's the problem. So I hope Sam Darnold gets to a place where he can slide in and be a, either a backup and really learn in a system with a great organization, or he gets to a place where he can be the guy again. Unfortunately, I feel like he's going to be in a, a Jameis Winston or a, or a Marcus Mariota situation where he ends up going and, and being a backup somewhere and having to learn and, and may get lost. I hope not, because I really think he can be a great starting quarterback in the NFL throughout the rest of his career. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely got all the tools. And Ryan, I haven't heard anyone say that Trevor Lawrence needs to take that approach when it comes to hiring an agent. I mean, that's great. You know, someone who did take that approach and actually took that approach with your Chargers was, of course, Eli Manning. What kind of role? Did you and your father, from what I've heard, play in Eli's decision to not be a Charger? Well, I, you know, I, I don't have anything bad to say about the Chargers, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's not taking accountability for yourself. And what I brought to the table, what, what my part in it was, you know, I can't 
speak to the part that the, the Chargers had in it. But I will say this, my, my family had a say in it, right? They, they felt that uh, I was let down by the organization when it came to the communication side of it and the media side of it, things like that. Um, so when, when Archie approached my dad, just, you know, about, all he did was ask a simple question, uh, you know, how was your, t- how was your son's time there, uh, out, you know, inside or inside the bubble rather than how the public viewed it, uh, through the media and everything like that. And, you know, my dad was honest and I think he just simply said that we love our kids and you want to trust them with the best possible people you can imagine. And uh, I don't think it took much Swain, and I don't think it was my father's input that made the Manning family choose and decide that they wanted a different locale, uh, a different system, a different organization in that process. Now, having said that, since my departure, the San Diego and L.A. Chargers have absolutely been blessed with quarterback play. Doug Flutie, Drew Brees, Philip Rivers, and now Justin Herbert. The problem is they just seemingly can't win the, the big games, you know, no matter how great their quarterback is. And it looks like Eli made the Eli and the Manning family made the right decision having gone to New York and, and winning two world championships and, and all, all the things and all the accolades that Eli got while in New York. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is remarkable. You know, I, I know you're in the car right now on the road. I don't know if you see behind me the uh, signed game-worn Super Bowl 46 jersey from Eli Manning, huge giant fans in this household. And I do often wonder, you know, if Philip Rivers was a giant, does Eli bring a couple of rings to San Diego or does Rivers bring a couple of rings to the Giants? How does history change? It, it definitely is something that I think about and I'm, I'm glad things turned out the way they did. Hey, what is to this point in time, your relationship like with, uh, with Peyton, the guy who was drafted right ahead of you back in 98 and the rest of the Manning family? Well, it, it's, we've known each other now since we were both 21 years old. That's when we first started talking, right? Uh, back before there were cell phones or anything like that, we had to be connected through our SIDs from Tennessee and, and Washington state. And I remember when he called for the first time and I picked up the phone and being from Montana and, and the Northwest, you don't hear that, that Southern drawl much at all. So when I heard his voice on the other end of the line, I just thought, Oh my God, it's Peyton Manning, you know, I was still starstruck. I've always been starstruck by players, and it may have been a big reason why I didn't feel like um, I, I could compete with them when I got to the highest level necessarily. Just, you know, when you're the only only Montanan ever drafted in the first round of the NFL draft, like there's no one else. There's not a trailblazer. There's been no one after, you know. You, you don't ever think you're going to get there. In fact, you know, you're told every evidence proves it. There's never been anybody, so they're like, you're never going to get there. You know, that's not going to be you he was always kind of this beacon of, of where I wanted to uh, ascend to. And uh, so it's been, it's been fun, right? He's a, he's a guy that, that never gave up on me. Uh, he reached out in my lowest moments. And I had friends of, of mine who I thought were my friends for years that just disappeared when things got bad. And here you got, you know, arguably the greatest quarterback to ever play. Uh, when things get bad, still – you know, just still be there to be a, a support of some sort. And uh, it's continued, you know. It, I probably think it's more of a relationship than he does. Um, but, you know, we text from time to time. Uh, I keep him posted on what's going on here. You know, I saw him last year in Tennessee when I called the Tennessee-Georgia State game. That was fun. I got to meet his son. 
you know, it's, it's a different deal being a, a worldwide superstar, right. And just kind of being the guy that, that, that kind of threw everything away and messed it up. So um, I think it's really, uh, really impressive. The, the human he is for the amount of success that he's had, because uh, we know a lot of people that have a ton of success that are just assholes and, and Peyton Manning certainly isn't one of them. Yeah, no, that's certainly a true statement. And it's great to hear that he really is one of the good guys. Hey, Ryan, I do want to shift back before we wrap things up to the college game, something that you do a phenomenal job breaking down on SiriusXM and, of course, your Believe in the Pac-12 podcast. You said over the weekend on Twitter that you think that USC, should they defeat Oregon, win the Pac-12, finish undefeated, is deserving of a playoff spot in the college football playoff. Where the hell did that come from? I I just have to be upfront with that because I don't think that any team from the Pac-12 is college football playoff quality. So I want to hear your case for the the, uh, USC Trojans. Well, they need one. They need Notre Dame to beat Clemson. So you okay. know, I should have prefaced it with that. They need they need Notre Dame to beat Clemson. If if Clemson wins the rematch, uh, they they won't have a shot. No one will have a shot. Uh, it will be the four that are there right now. It will be Alabama, Clemson, uh, Notre Dame, and Ohio State will be the four. But if Notre Dame beats Clemson, gives them a second loss, and they are out of the college football playoff, I believe it comes down to three teams. I believe it comes down to USC who's an undefeated Pac-12 Power 5 champion. It comes to down to Cincinnati, who will be an undefeated American Conference champion. And it'll be Texas A&M if they're able to get by Tennessee this weekend as a one-loss team that would play 10 games, nine games. Um, so I think the committee looks at that. And, I, and the committee has told you over and over that conference championships are a huge data point. Not just a little one, not just a part of the equation, but a huge part of it. And if they're saying that Ohio State in a six-game season as an undefeated conference champion with really only wins over uh, the likes of Indiana and, the, and Northwestern, hopefully, then the fourth spot, if you're telling me it's between those three teams, then USC gets in over Cincinnati and Texas A&M. We've already seen Texas A&M get bloodied and busted by Alabama. We don't need to see that again. USC was supposed to play Alabama in week one of this year, ironically enough. And if you're going to take a group of five team over a Pac-12 team, it's, that's never going to happen. I'm sorry, Cincinnati, but I don't care how many undefeated seasons you have. You're not, you're not getting in the college football playoff. You need to have your own group of five college football playoff. You really, really do. So it, it really kind of comes down to A&M and, and USC. And I think that the committee, if they look at it, they're going to give it to USC if, that, if that's how it breaks down. I really do. Uh, a lot of people don't see it, and most people think Alabama's going to trounce them, but who in the fourth spot would not be trounced by Alabama this year? The only team I could think of is Clemson. And if the company wants to do that and place a two-loss Clemson team in there, I'm okay with it. It just doesn't line up with what they've said, and they've completely backed themselves into a corner. They should have expanded this thing from the beginning. They should expand it on Tuesday night when they do the rankings release. They really should. Bingo. You evaluate a, team that's, a team that's evaluated – or you're telling me you're going to evaluate an 11-game uh, season versus a six-game season? It's, it's, you can't do it. You're, you're simply telling everybody and setting a precedent like, hey, Ohio State next year, if you want to just you know, become independent from the Big Ten and play six games, that's good enough because the committee has told us that. Yep. No, Ryan, I totally agree with you. Look, for the same reason that I don't think Ohio State belongs in the playoff, I don't think USC, even if they go 6-0 and win the Pac-12, belongs. 
I would rather see Cincinnati there. Look, my thing just with the eye test is USC went to Arizona, beat an awful Arizona team by four points. You know, they really haven't had a strong schedule. Arizona State, I think under normal non-COVID circumstances would be a much better win than it was. But even they've been disappointing in just the handful of games they've played. Whereas Cincinnati has trounced teams like SMU on the road. They won at UCF. Uh, They demolished Houston. I feel like if Cincinnati beats Tulsa convincingly in this conference championship game, that they're more deserving than Ohio State or USC because of the small sample sizes that we've seen from those two power conference teams. I mean, I understand that, but you can't, you can't put a group of five team in the, in the college football playoff, because if you put them in a, if you put them in a power five conference, Cincinnati wouldn't be undefeated. They, they just wouldn't. Yeah. They, you know how hard it is to be undefeated right now? It's, it's, there's, o- there's only 12 teams in the country that have started five and all this year. Somehow USC has been able to do it. Right. You got to give credit for, for winning games. Right. Yeah. Clemson didn't get done. Clemson went to Notre Dame, and it, and it was close down there, but they, they still didn't win, right? It's you got to give credit for winning games, and I know the sample size isn't large with five. I don't care if they beat Arizona by four points. It, they won the game, right? They didn't they didn't floored it up. They didn't screw around and lose to an LSU team when everybody in the world said USC should not lose to Arizona, and they didn't. Florida should not lose to LSU in that game. Not one person in the planet picked them. Uh, to win that game, except the people that walked off that bus and into that stadium for LSU, and it happened. So you got to be given credit for the fact that you keep on winning. And uh, I'm I'm sorry, you know, uh, Bearcat fans, I I, I love Luke Bickle, and and I love what he's done there, but you guys got to start your own playoff because you're not going to get the respect you deserve because people will simply not look at you beating SMU as – you beating UCLA. I'm sorry. It's, 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 it's not going to be considered the same and the committee's not going to see it the same either. Fair enough, Ryan. And that's why I totally agree that the college football playoff committee does need to expand it this season to eight games. Last thing before I let you go, because you're a returning guest, because we've spoken two, three times before, I feel like I have to ask you about this. Max Gilliam, the UNLV quarterback who recently issued a public apology because he ate sushi off a naked model on reality TV. I don't know. I don't know if that apology was necessarily warranted. I don't know what the outrage was there. It was a reality television show. But it made me think Ryan Leaf at Washington State was a celebrity. He wasn't just a great college football player. He was a celebrity. And I got to ask you, Ryan, if you've got a comparable story to that, something that you did up in Washington. I mean, I'm sure I did so many stupid stuff. I think I even said that, you know, when I heard the story and I, and I commented on it, I said, you know, I probably ate sushi off a, off a nude girl in college. Come on. You know, what, what impressed me is that he, he stood up and took accountability for something that he probably didn't need to take accountability for. That's what a leader does. Yeah. Uh, I fought it tooth and nail. I'd have been like, fuck you all. Right. I can do whatever the hell I want. And that's not what people want from, they want to see people be flawed and understand that they're flawed and apologize and lead from, from, from the front. And that's what, that's what Max did. And I think that's what, I think that's a positive and that's a difference. There's no reason why he needed to apologize, but sometimes when you are the leader of a team, the head coach and the quarterback, you get all the praise and all the blame. It's not warranted on either side, but that's the path we chose to walk. And so I, I'm really proud of, of how he reacted uh, how he uh, behaved from that, that point on, because 
Hell, we're all flawed human beings. Just because he plays quarterback doesn't mean he's perfect. And uh, and I love to see it. So there 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 are plenty of stories. I did stupid shit my whole life, you know. Uh, you probably could you probably could look even more into it when I was in the pros, just doing stupid things, especially when I was in Vegas and stuff like that. So that that uh, that exists, right? The difference is the young man is a man, and he stepped up and said, "Hey, it wasn't right. Won't happen again." Uh, but if it does, I'll apologize for it uh, because I'm flawed, and that's that was a huge, I guess, green flag for me in terms of. Uh, a positive for that young man. There you have it. Ryan, thanks so much for the time and joining the show, man. And uh, keep doing great work. Keep bettering yourself every day, man. It's so great to see the place that you're in in life right now. You bet. Thanks for having me. We'll talk soon, man. We'll be right back here on Serralo Sports Talk. Don't change that channel. It's time for Joe's final word here on Serralo Sports Talk. Wow, what a spot right there from Ryan Leaf. The always entertaining Ryan Leaf. How about that take on Trevor Lawrence needing to hire an agent who will assure him that he will not end up a New York Jet come April's NFL draft. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how things play out, but nothing Ryan said about that was wrong. Nothing he said about the Jets ruining Sam Darnold was wrong. They could do the same exact thing to Trevor Lawrence. Now, for my final word here as I wrap up this episode of Serralo Sports Talk, we alluded to it, Ryan and I, in our discussion before. The Buffalo Bills are the biggest threat to the Kansas City Chiefs in the AFC. I absolutely love everything that Josh Allen has done and is doing right here in year three. He's completing 70% of his passes. He's tough as nails. Now he finally has some help. He's got one of the best wide receivers in the league, Stephon Diggs, putting an all-pro season together. Josh Allen is, dare I say, an elite NFL quarterback. Look, I never thought I would say it. I thought Allen, and I take credit for Lamar Jackson's MVP campaign. I said Lamar Jackson was the best of those five quarterbacks coming out of the 2018 draft class. Well, look, Josh Allen this year certainly looks like the best. And where I have to take credit for being wrong is when I said Josh Allen would be the worst of those five. He has been phenomenal. The Buffalo Bills looked dead Sunday night to start that game. Allen looked dead. They were turning the ball over. They were punting in the first half. They couldn't put anything together. I mean, with about eight minutes to go in the second quarter, Josh Allen made an incredible throw against pressure from the Pittsburgh pass rush, hit Stephon Diggs, second and 18, hit him on a deep first down. Diggs comes down out of bounds, and I just threw my hands up and said, well, it was a great play. They got nothing to show for it. This one's probably done. The Bills' offense couldn't move the chains to save their lives. Then, not too long later, They get a third and nine, no call, flag was thrown. It was probably going to be against Tredavious White, the all-pro cornerback. The refs picked up the flag, by the way, made the right call in doing so. And that seemed to change the fortune of the Buffalo Bills. They take a pick six into the locker room at halftime, come out in the second half, and Josh Allen goes seven of seven to start, 10 of 11 
to start off his second half in the pocket. Stephon Diggs, who is going to be an All-Pro this year, hauls in six out of those ten quick completions in the third quarter. And the Bills, from that point on, the offense is a well-oiled machine. They made a Pittsburgh defense that has been elite all season look like it just gave up 42 or 47 points on Monday Night Football. They were slicing and dicing that second half. And I loved every single minute of it. You know, if you're Ben Roethlisberger Sunday night, that must have been a freaky game to play. Because it was like he was playing against Ben Roethlisberger from 15 years ago in red unis on the other side of the ball. I I mean, Josh Allen showed everything in that game Sunday night that Big Ben has built his undoubtedly Hall of Fame career on. He showed poise. He showed his ability to stay tough in the pocket, take a hit, take off and run when he has to. He made the big clutch throw. You know, when I talk about the poise that Josh Allen showed, he had two turnovers, he had a bunch of three and outs early, and it didn't phase him. You look at other quarterbacks across the league. I got like Jared Goff, for example, who is a great quarterback. The difference there is you know Jared Goff right off the bat whether or not he's going to have a good game. Because if he's not, he looks like a deer in the headlights. And Josh Allen has had a lot to improve upon so far through three years. And now he's finally at that elite quarterback status, at least for the 2020 campaign. And it's because part of it is because he never has that deer in the headlights look. He is cool, calm, collected, confident, and Josh Allen is the biggest reason that the Buffalo Bills pose a bigger threat to the Kansas City Chiefs than any other team in the AFC. I could say any other team in the NFL. And look, I know that the Pittsburgh Steelers, who were once 11-0, are still 11-2 and are still mathematically the two seed in the AFC, but don't talk to me about Pittsburgh in the postseason. I mean, Big Ben leads the league in passing attempts. He's the only quarterback with more than 500 passing attempts in the National Football League. In fact, in the last five games, he's averaging 47 throws per contest. Yet, he only averages 6.3 yards per attempt. That's 31st in the National Football League. The Pittsburgh Steelers' rushing offense is also 31st in the National Football League. So you're already dealing with a one-dimensional offense, a passing-only offense, and they can't pass the ball down the field. They can't get a first down on first and 10 because the entire offense is built on check downs, quick square outs, slants, intermediate routes. They don't have a deep ball threat. Ben is outside the top 15 in 20-yard completions among NFL quarterbacks and outside the top 20 for 40-yard completions. There is no deep ball element to this Pittsburgh Steeler offense. And when you can't run the ball and you can't throw deep, you become pretty damn predictable. Look, I said it a week or two ago on the show right here. If Pittsburgh's defense has a lapse where, not that they're even bad, but for one game in the postseason, they aren't absolutely elite and hitting the opposing quarterback and forcing turnovers, then they don't have a shot in hell come January. You know who does? The Buffalo Bills. That's it for this one. This episode of Serralo Sports Talk is officially up. It's over. It's out of here. Special thanks to Ryan Leaf for hopping on the show and giving me some great stuff. Special thanks to Josh Allen, Baker Mayfield, and Lamar Jackson for giving me endless talking points this week. Guys, I'll see you again next week for my final show of 2020. Oh my
crying, you're so scared and all alone. Hangman is coming down from the gallows and I don't have very long. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform 
Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.